This episode is brought to you by Piedmontese Beef. Now, mm. Andrew, what's up? People are wondering. They want to know that we have this deluxe bundle. Can you tell them about it, please? <laughs> I'll tell them about the deluxe bundle. Uh, so, again, uh, I always recommend people check out our Power Project Deluxe Bundle on Piedmontese.com because sometimes, you know, there, there's a lot of different cuts on Piedmontese.com and you just just maybe you're not sure where you want to start. So what we did is we selected our favorites and it gives you a whole range from the fatty cuts to the lean cuts to what I call the diet steak, which is the bavette steak, which is the gigantic hundred grams of protein steak. So real quick, just run down. Uh, starting off with my absolute favorite, the flat iron steaks. Uh, then we're going to move on to the flank steak and then a bunch of the ground beef patties. Uh, let's see, we got New York strips. We have the grass fed bavette, uh, steaks. And then of course, because you know, we're a bunch of savages over here. Uh, we have to throw in the tomahawk steak. That's the one with the big old handle that you can grab it and, you know, club somebody with it or you can eat it uh right there that's going to be an amazing value you're going to get a huge discount on that so our promo code doesn't work on this one but what you can do is you guys can select the ones that you like the most and then create your own bundle um you can do all this right now at piedmontese.com that's p-i-e-d-m-o-n-t-e-s-e.com at checkout enter promo code power project for 25 percent off your order again that code's not going to work on uh the Power Project Deluxe Bundle, but like I said, you can make your own bundle, get 25% off, and free shipping on any orders of $99 or more. Head over there right now. What up, Power Project crew? This is Josh Settledge, a.k.a. Settlegate, here to introduce you to our next guest, Dr. Robert Lustig. Dr. Robert Lustig is a professor of pediatrics, division of endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He specializes in the field of neuroendocrinology with an emphasis on the regulation of energy balance by the central nervous system. His research and clinical practice has focused on childhood obesity and diabetes. Dr. Lustig holds a bachelor's degree in science from MIT, a doctorate in medicine from Cornell University, medical college, and a master's of studies in law from UC Hastings College of the Law. Dr. Lustig has fostered a global discussion of metabolic health and nutrition, exposing some of the more leading myths that underlie the current pandemic of diet-related disease. He believes the food business, by pushing processed food loaded with sugar, has hacked our bodies and minds to pursue pleasure instead of happiness, fostering today's epidemics of addiction and depression. Yet by focusing on real food, we can beat the odds against sugar, processed food, obesity, and disease. On top of that, through his research, Dr. Lustig has found the three primary causes of chronic disease in children and adults. But you guys probably don't want to hear about that because that's a different story. Please enjoy this conversation with our guest, Dr. Robert Lustig. How are you feeling after your cocoa shot? Um, yeah, well, yesterday was odd. Uh, if you guys listened to yesterday's podcast, you know I felt real like weirdly space-headed and high. Um, sleeping was a little bit rough. I woke up a few times last night, but today I feel fairly normal. I woke up like six times last night and I usually do not wake up at night. So it was a little odd, but we are back at it today. Nice. Yeah. You'll probably feel pretty good later today. I bet. Oh yeah. 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 I feel good right now. <clears throat> yeah. Um, be careful with that cocoa shot. People, people always talk about that second, uh, the, the second feaser, shot, the second feaser. Yeah. So. I thought I was built different. I apparently I'm not. <laughs> I would still say you're built a little bit different. Uh, 
Well, one thing you don't have to be careful about is so technically today, today, Piedmontese is having the Memorial Day sale. Oh, really? Yeah, really. So you don't have to worry about accidentally putting in the wrong code or anything today because the entire website is 25% off right now. Oh, you better take advantage yeah, of that. Or, well, let's see, starting at 3 p.m. Central Time. So whatever that time is. 1 p.m. Pacific. Oh, well, that makes it easy. So yeah. 1 p.m. Pacific, specific time mm. uh, over at Piedmontese.com, P-I-E-D-M-O-N-T-E-S-E.com. You guys can get everything 25% off. That's amazing. And yeah, dude, we had some more of the Hop Dottie Patties. Yeah, good. They're so good. Yeah. Okay, I'm happy that you're finally eating fat. I know. You should be. Well, I I still, my favorite is still the flat iron. And when you look at the overall calories, Uh, like I can have that and mm. all kinds of other fun foods. True. But yeah, something about the extra fatty patties. (laughs) That's the fat. Mm -hmm. Need that fat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We got a great guest on today. Uh, Robert Lustig. Um, He, uh, Super popular in terms of, uh, you know, somebody that talks a lot about nutrition. Um, he's been in the field for a long time. He's attacked it from many different angles. Uh, he's worked with kids, uh, childhood obesity. And I think that's kind of where he started to really uh, question a lot of the things that he knew. Bless you, Andrew. A lot of things he knew, a lot of things he learned, um, because <clears throat> it's a complicated thing to try to figure out. Uh, as weird as it sounds. It's kind of controversial, um, and Robert he'll he'll uh, he'll share with us today how he doesn't think it's controversial. But I, I've seen people argue and fight over like what makes us obese in the first place, mm-hmm. and so trying to identify that problem. Some people say it's insulin. Some people say it's other things. Um, I think it's a mismanagement of of uh, energy, just over consuming energy each and every day, and. After a while, that leads to some uh, negative impacts, and I think it it does matter quite a bit on what you eat, uh, the quality of foods. I think if you were to eat whole foods, natural foods, and even if you were to overeat a little bit, I think maybe you would gain some weight, but I don't think you would end up with a lot of uh, disease, and I don't think you would end up with nearly as many problems, and I don't think you would n- end up nearly as overweight. Uh, but Robert, um, Dr. Lustig, I guess yeah. I should call him, um, he... Uh, has over 12 million views on one of the YouTube videos that he did years ago. Um, and, you know, he goes back and forth between giving you real world, like evidence in real world. I would just put in quotes proof. I don't think anyone has like real proof of anything. Um, he gives you real world information along with giving you some of the science and giving you uh, some of the reasons how we landed on all these different things. And also, like, <clears throat> this is a weird thing, but uh, people talk a lot about free uh, free will and whether whether we actually get an opportunity to choose things. And that kind of whole thing gets to be very confusing. But our, our food is kind of, in a weird way, our food is kind of fed to us. And we don't really have control over, we have control over what we purchase and how we purchase it and things like that. But we don't have that much control over what is done to our food. Unless we take it upon ourselves to go out of our way to get the highest quality foods, which are usually more expensive, mm-hmm. and we go out of our way to cook the foods in a way that we think is the best for us. And that is usually uh, where some of the problems start to happen for a lot of people, because if it's not convenient and it's not simple, uh, it's going to be hard for people to do it every day. And so people are feeding themselves and their children 
uh, these convenient, uh, highly produced foods, um, highly processed foods, I should say. Yeah. And uh, it's leading to a lot of problems because there's sugars and um, uh, weird fats and all kinds of just chemically type stuff that that are in these foods that don't belong in our body. They kind of override our ability to to stop uh, overeating. Insulin levels stay high throughout the day. Your hunger hormone stays jacked up throughout the day and you continue to overeat each and every day and you end up with some diseases <laughs> after a long period of time of doing that. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's something interesting, especially when, since we're going to be talking about sugar so much today, because you have a lot of individuals like trainers who do talk about how, you know, it's not sugar that's at fault. And if somebody tells you it's sugar that's at fault, you know, fire your trainer, fire your trainer, blah, blah, blah. And it, it, that's an understandable sentiment because, you know, some people, you know, you think about the calories in and calories out aspect of it, and you can understand that you can fit some of that in. Um, but sugar is very, very easy to overeat. It's very, very easy to overconsume on a consistent basis. And I think when people are talking about sugar being the culprit, that's one of the big aspects that they're talking about. The, of the ability to overconsume sugar. It's very hard to overconsume protein. It's very hard to overconsume vegetables. Right. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to sugary treats, it's very easy to overconsume. So like that kind of needs to be understood when people are talking about how big of a problem it is. It's like it's it's readily available and you can eat and eat and eat it without getting filled up. That is a problem. And it's super cheap. And it's super cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then if somebody were to, you know, because uh, researching like a Snickers bar only has like shit it's like under 200 calories or something or maybe i don't not maybe now i'm misremembering but like a protein bar would have close to 300 Mm -hmm. if somebody were to just literally be able to stop eating sugar they'd be able to have the snickers bar and be okay or something else going on inside so let's just say okay a a protein bar with we'll say sucralose 300 calories versus a actual candy bar that has half the amount of calories. If this person were to somehow be able to shut off completely like hunger signals, uh, you know, have all of a sudden crazy willpower to say no to other sugars, would there be something else going on? Like as far as like, Oh, now this person's just going to gain more weight because of the sugar. Or is it because that sugar is going to lead to more sugar? If an individual's like, if they're counting their calories and they're made a Snickers bar fit, mm-hmm. right? Um, like, I have seen that be okay. It's not that, that isn't going to like magically turn into fat or something. Mm-hmm. People are able to do that successfully. People are able to make things fit. But it's just most people have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. For most people, that opens up a door to have more. Okay. It leads to more mm-hmm. easily. So if, since that's the issue, like it's very hard to just keep that in control. Some, for some people, it's best to avoid it. It's but, kind of uh, maybe a little similar to alcohol where it's like, is it okay to have a drink or two mm-hmm. and to drive? <laughs> right? Like sounds like a bad idea in general. Like you should have no drinks if you're going to drive anywhere at any time. But a drink or two doesn't sound that harmful. It sounds like you're probably going to be okay, especially if it's over like a period of time, especially if it's with food, you're probably going to be just fine. But a lot of times once somebody has that first drink, then they get excited and they have 
four drinks and now we're running into, you know, running into some issues. And so it's the dosage that is a huge factor. But when it comes to our children, this is where, this is where it's easier just to say, Hey, look, let's get rid of sugar because your kids are kind of, everything they eat is kind of sugary. Um, or most of the things that we try to uh, say is for kids is sugary. Yeah. It doesn't always even have sugar in it, though. But, like, I would consider Cheez-Its as being sugary because it's a highly processed food and it has a lot of carbohydrates in it. it sure, sure, it has fat in it and stuff like that, too. But it doesn't have much protein. That's going to be something that's going to spike your insulin levels. Probably just as good as some, like, apple juice or something like that. So mm-hmm. I would put it in that category. And children um, eat, like, just enormous amounts of carbohydrates. It's really... It's really uh, skewed um, and, and they snack most of the day. And then when it comes time for them to eat, they're not hungry. You know, I have my own children and I, I've seen this happen before where, uh, you know, we give them a lunch that is uh, fairly healthy. You know, it's just a sandwich with some protein and stuff like that. It's not not any sort of weird special, uh, you know, protein meal or anything. It's just a normal type of the type type of thing. But they're not hungry for it sometimes. I've seen that happen before just because. They maybe had cereal in the morning, mm-hmm. then they have a snack in the afternoon. They eat like five granola bars with chocolate chips in them or whatever. Yeah. So after a while, we just got rid of a lot of that stuff because we're just like, we see empty wrappers. We're like, you know, we're trying to send them off to school with a snack that goes with other food that they have. Um, but then they're just randomly snacking on it throughout the day. So we got rid of a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Thank you so much Bye. for uh coming on our show today uh just to sure. give you a little bit of a background on us i don't expect you to know everything about us over here um we've right. been <laughs> talking a lot about nutrition we've talked to some of the best people in the world um okay. about this very topic and we kind of land on the, some of the same uh similar information uh quite often so i think you'll be like-minded with some of the people we've had on uh previously right, well, we'll <laughs> i'm uh, mark bell this is in SEMA, and we got our buddy uh andrew over there all three of us are involved in right. fitness. We love to train. I have two children. Uh, Andrew has two children as well. And uh, so I think a great place to start for today would be to kind of dive in uh, and talk about children because I think I think the kids of today are maybe the, our only way uh, out of the obesity epidemic that we really suffer from here in the United States. So I guess, can you explain to us um, how people get to be obese like how is uh obesity uh such a part of american society and and what <laughs> triggers it in your in your understanding of it so i'm gonna tell you that this is a way more complicated than anybody out there has uh uh suggested there are a lot of pieces to this <clears throat> the standard mantra is well you eat too much exercise too little and, you know, so you're blaming the victim, you know, gluttony and sloth, a calorie is a calorie, uh, you, you eat more than you burn, you know, it's uh, diet and exercise. If you're fat, it's your fault. Uh, and don't blame our calories, go pick on somebody else's calories. All of that comes from a simple precept. And that precept is that a calorie is a calorie, that calories are fungible. So it doesn't matter if we get your calories from Carrots or cheesecake or Coca-Cola or kumquats, they're all the same. And that's what we're told. And that's what, you know, a lot of people still believe. Well, that's not what the science says. 
science says something very different. So let's back up now that I'm my job in this world is to kill the calorie as a unit of measure that we should never talk about calories again because they are useless. I want them removed from the nutrition facts label because they are more than misleading. They are detrimental. How's that? Okay. So let me explain how children actually uh, demonstrate this. Four studies, Russia, South Africa, Israel, the United States. In the last 25 years, every single one of those four countries has witnessed an increase in birth size. Okay, and this is not because of late-term births. This is, you know, increase in birth weight uh, by 200 grams, half a pound. And if you look and do DEXA scanning, which, you know, gives you body compositional analysis, that 200 grams is all fat. So we have fat newborns. And those fat newborns become fat children, and those fat children become fat adults. And in fact, those fat newborns, you can actually see cardiovascular risk factors as early as age five. Mm. Now, you know, you can say what you want about uh, personal responsibility, about, you know, it's your fault. But, you know, newborns don't choose what they eat. And any hypothesis that you want to proffer for what's going on with the obesity epidemic in this country has to explain that. And you can't. So you know something more is going on. And the reason something more is going on is because it's not about calories. So that's the first piece of information. Second piece of information is that as a pediatrician, I have watched this tsunami of chronic metabolic disease overwhelm the United States over the past 50 years. You know, I entered medical school in 1976. And back then, type 2 diabetes was 2.5% of the population over age 65. Now it is 9.4% of the entire population. And in fact, 5% of the population under age 50. And now we have five-year-olds getting type 2 diabetes. So these children are the canaries in the coal mine. In fact, there are two diseases, two, that now occur in children as young as age five that were never seen before in adults, type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. Okay, Since when do children get fatty liver disease? Prior to 1980, if you saw a patient with fatty liver disease, that was due to alcohol. Okay, You knew they were an alcoholic. But you know what? Kids don't drink alcohol, at least most. All right, Certainly five-year-olds don't drink alcohol. Mm. Yet, 20% of children today have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. 20% of all children today? All children in America today have fatty liver disease. 
percent, mm-hmm. not just the obese children. The obese children is 40 percent, 20 percent of all children, maybe your kids. And you don't know it. But when you do the liver ultrasound, you can find out. Okay, and there's some other ways which we can talk about as to how you diagnose this. This is a silent disease until it's not. All right. I mean, basically, you can reverse fatty liver until you can't. When you start getting inflammation and you start getting necrosis and and cell death in the liver and you start getting um, uh, uh, fibrosis and uh, scarring, you know, then you've got cirrhosis. And it is now uh, uh, true that uh, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the leading cause of liver transplant in the United States now having overtaken hepatitis C. This is a disease that didn't exist before 1980, and it is now epidemic. And it's not just in the United States. It's everywhere, not to our extent, but it's everywhere. Hong Kong, Korea, Australia, you name the country, it's there. So where did this come from? And what's causing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Oh, and by the way, these diseases have nothing to do with obesity. Yes, they're made worse by obesity, but normal weight people get these things too. So if children, five-year-old children have fatty liver disease, do you really want to tell me that this is about gluttony and sloth, that this is about calories in, calories out, that this is about energy balance? Okay, doesn't make sense. Let me give you another one. Okay, this is not children. We're going to adults now. There is a founder effect cohort in Ecuador, and they are known as the Little Women of Loja. And they're very interesting. They have a mutation in the growth hormone receptor. All right. So their growth hormone does not work in any of their tissues. So that's why they're little. All right. And these women are obese. These women are very large compared to their, you know, uh, neighbors or to their, even their sisters or brothers who don't have the mutation, right? They are obese, yet they have almost a 0% prevalence of diabetes or heart disease compared to their sibs who have a high prevalence. And cancer, and even, right? And they're thin and they have no cancer. That's exactly right. All right. So here's obesity without its complications. So there are a zillion reasons why this is not about obesity. Yes, obesity is a problem. I'm not saying it's not. But if you want to pin all of these health care problems on obesity, and if you want to pin obesity on this concept of energy balance, then you really need to read my book. Because once you're finished, Okay, you're not going to believe that anymore. So that's, you know, the first thing, okay? And it's all revolving around this myth, this notion that calories are the problem. They are not. Which calories are the problem? That's what we have to get into. It's the food quality rather than the food quantity that is the problem. And I'm sure we will go there. Yeah, the name of your book, I think it's a great name, um, Metabolical. <laughs> that is a really, really oh. uh, cool name. I think it hits the nail uh, right on the head. 
When you're mentioning it's not about calories, let's dive into that deeply because in our community, in the fitness community, in bodybuilding and in powerlifting, when people are trying to maybe bulk and gain weight, they up their calories. When people are trying to get leaner slash thinking that they're maybe getting healthier, they're going to try to reduce their calories. And also a lot of people will track their macronutrients, they'll track their protein, they'll track their carbohydrate intake and so forth. What are some of your thoughts on that? What do you feel is maybe uh, missing when people are implementing that and they're losing weight and thinking that they're getting healthier, but there could be other uh, problems that they're not paying attention to? Absolutely. So, I mean, that's that's the $64 zillion question. So let me give you a few examples of how this works and why counting your calories is basically a fool's errand. You know, it's just never going to work. Hasn't worked yet, not for the general population. And to be honest with you, it probably doesn't work for the, uh, for the weightlifting population either. And here's why. Let's take almonds. All right, you like almonds? Indeed. I like almonds. Almonds are pretty good, actually. All right, you eat 160 calories in almonds. How many of those calories do you absorb? Yes. Yeah, there's fiber, there's uh, protein, so yeah. Uh, yeah. maybe half of them, I don't know, 80? But you absorb about 130, mm. okay? So you ate 160, you absorb 130. Where'd those other 30 go? Great question. <laughs> Did they go out your poop? <laughs> Did they go out your kidneys? I mean, they went somewhere, where'd yeah. they go? You know, this isn't sleight of hand, this, you know, there's... They went somewhere, but where'd they go? Uh, they into went, uh, digestion, maybe? I don't know. Not quite. They went to the intestinal microbiome. So each of us is 10 trillion cells, but our bacteria are 100 trillion cells. Okay? Our bacteria in our intestine outnumber us 10 to 1. Okay? And you need those bacteria. They actually help keep you alive. Okay? People who don't have bacteria in their intestine are actually kind of sick. All right. Now, those bacteria have to eat something. Now, the question is, what do they eat? Well, they eat what you eat. The question is, how much did you get versus how much did they get? Now, if you ate those almonds, the fiber in the almonds, the soluble and insoluble fiber, form a gel on the inside of your duodenum, the first part of your intestine. Okay. And you can actually see it on electron microscopy, this whitish gel that covers the inside of the duodenum, and it uh, makes a secondary barrier so that simple carbohydrates, monosaccharides, disaccharides, simple starches don't get absorbed as early on in the intestine. And what that does is that means your liver is not going to have to experience the tsunami of all this carbohydrate coming out at all at once. And it will reduce your glucose excursion, you know, and everyone's right now interested in keeping your glucose excursion down because that keeps your insulin excursion down. And that's true. All right. And that's all, that's all good. And what it also means <clears throat> is that those calories that would have gotten absorbed, but for the fiber are going to get f- transported further down the intestine to the next part called the jejunum. And what's in the jejunum that's not in the duodenum, the bacteria. That's where the bacteria live. The bacteria don't live in the duodenum. The pH is too low. It hasn't changed yet from the stomach acid. Okay. So 
After the pancreas injects its pancreatic juice through the sphincter of Odi in the duodenum and starts mixing with all of the intestinal contents, then the pH comes up to 7.4, and that's where the bacteria are. Point is, now the bacteria are getting the calories that were in those almonds delivered further down the intestine. And so they chew it up for their own purposes. So even though it passed your lips, even though it registered as a calorie consumed, it wasn't a calorie absorbed. And if it wasn't absorbed, who cares about the math? So this whole concept of counting calories is irrelevant because it's not what you eat, it's what you absorb. And you can't measure that. So that's one reason a calorie is not a calorie. Because if you ate it with fiber, it wasn't for you. Mm. It was for your bacteria. And you need to feed them. So that's one reason. Let's take a second reason. Protein. Now, you guys love protein powder. Okay. I am here to tell you that if you are a bodybuilder, if you are a weightlifter and you want to build muscle, then you need protein powder. And the reason you need protein powder, I'm not giving a specific brand or anything. I'm not here to endorse anything. The reason is because Protein powder is basically branched chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, valine, all essential amino acids. You have to consume them. Your body can't make them. And those three amino acids are 20% of muscle. They're very high in muscle. So if you are trying to build muscle, you need them. You can't get them anywhere else except your diet. And so if you're building, then you, you know, need a source of those branched-chain amino acids. By the way, do you know what has the highest concentration of branched-chain amino acids? Whey protein. Corn. Oh, there we go. Really? Corn. Mm. Corn. Carbohydrate. And there was just a paper that came out from South Korea that basically said it's carbohydrate that drives um, uh, branched-chain amino acid uh, consumption. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, of all the different things you could be eating. And that also generates an insulin response. And leucine, by the way, is a very specific insulin stimulator. So if you're trying to put weight on, all right, branched chain amino acids are perfect because number one, they give you the components of muscle and they generate an insulin response. Okay. But what if you're not a bodybuilder? What if you're a mere mortal like me? And what if you consume excess branched-chain amino acids, not because you're consuming protein powder, but because you're consuming a corn-fed steak? And let's say you don't need those branched-chain amino acids for muscle building because, like I said, you're a mere mortal. Where do the excess go? Is there a place for the bo- in the body to store them? So what happens to them? They go to the liver. The liver has to take the amino group off. So now instead of a branch chain amino acid, now they're a branch chain organic acid. And that branch chain organic acid will enter into what's known as the Krebs cycle, what happens in the mitochondria to burn energy all the way to ATP and carbon dioxide. And that gives, that's the chemical energy of life mm-hmm. is to make ATP. 
All right. Now, that's all well and good, but two things. Number one, it costs more energy to take that amino group off the amino acid than it does to phosphorylate, say, a carbohydrate. So there's a net loss of energy when you're burning a piece of uh, an amino acid compared to a monosaccharide. So they're not equivalent. You know, if you put them in a bomb calorimeter and you explode them, they're equivalent. But in the body, because there's a net loss of taking that amino acid and turning it into energy, they're not equivalent. But you can't determine that from, quote, calories, unquote. Another reason a calorie is not a calorie. In addition, you ate those branched-chain amino acids. You didn't need them. They enter the Krebs cycle. But the Krebs cycle can only run so fast. Everyone's got a fixed rate of maximum velocity on that Krebs cycle. You can only go so quick. If you overwhelm it, what happens to the excess? It gets thrown off out of the mitochondria as citrate through a process called the citrate shuttle. That citrate can then be broken back down into acetyl-CoA in the cytoplasm, not in the mitochondria. And then that acetyl-CoA will then generate two carbon fragments and you will have basically built from scratch a fatty acid with an enzyme called fatty acid synthase. This, this process of taking citrate all the way to fatty acid is a process that we study at UCSF and Toro University called de novo lipogenesis, DNL, new fat making. This is how your liver turns carbohydrate and particularly sugar into fat. And it is that liver fat that causes chronic disease unrelated to its calories, having nothing to do with its calories. So the more de novo lipogenesis, the more liver fat, the more insulin resistance, the more chronic disease. So you want protein powder? You better be a bodybuilder. You know, this okay so this has me curious because individuals that are like i guess in the fitness industry um individuals that are trainers because you you hear a lot of trainers talk about this or people that compete and they've been able to successfully change their body composition to the left and to the right uh gaining and losing they've done it for people using calories right they're listening and they are kind of probably trying to really rack their head on why it doesn't matter. And I mean, we can understand that it's not exact. When you put all these calories that you're tracking into one of your trackers, you have an idea of what it may be, even though that is probably wrong to an extent, but they would say, well, it's a consistent measurement. That's wrong. And I'm tracking my change. (laughs) It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. But then they're tracking their change off of that wrong measurement. And then they make more changes to that measurement. Right. So it ends yeah. up still leading them in the direction. So what well, I- sure, sure. I mean, you know, I'm not going to argue that. I mean, the fact is, if you eat less, you will lose of weight. Course, I'm not arguing course. that. The question is why? Exactly. Is it because of calories? No, it's because of insulin. It's because of insulin. Because of insulin. No, okay. calories in general correlate with insulin response. Mm-hmm. But there are specific foods where it doesn't. That's not true. In general, it's true. Carbohydrate definitely generates an insulin response. No argument there. 
but carbohydrate with fiber generates a very weak insulin response. Okay. In fact, I have a slide that I show, which shows the glucose excursion in your blood in response to a low carb diet versus a high fiber diet. And they're almost identical, almost identical, high fiber diet, you know, high carb, high fiber, Mm -hmm. low carb. Same glucose excursion, therefore, same insulin response. So here are all these people yelling, you know, um, low carb, low carb, low carb, you know, keto, keto, keto. All right. The fact of the matter is, I understand why, and I'm not against keto. I'm actually for it. But you can, I can, I can be for vegan too, because vegan, if you do it right, that is, has lots of fiber. Okay. So the Ornish diet's pretty much vegan. All right. And it's pretty much, you know, a bunch of twigs and sticks. Mm. All right. And if you like twigs and sticks, you know, that works very well. The point is that Coke, Doritos, and Oreos are also vegan. So just eating vegan doesn't mean you're doing it right. Because Coke, Doritos, and, uh, and Oreos don't have any fiber. And so your glucose excursion will be enormous, will be massive. And that will drive weight gain. So really, calories and carbohydrate and glycemic index, which I also think is a canard, okay? These are all proxies for the insulin response. It's the insulin response that actually determines gain, weight gain, weight loss, body compositional changes, et cetera. The problem is right now, we don't have an online, you know, in real time measure of our insulin excursions, but we're working on it. I'm actually working with a couple of companies that are trying to develop a wearable to be able to do just that. Yeah, at the moment, and that will be a big, big boon. Yeah, at the moment, you can mainly track your glucose levels, right? Which is that's right. Maybe just not as accurate of a measure of what's happening with your insulin due to the fact that you exactly. might be eating uh, other things with uh, the carbohydrates, and it might be slowing down the absorption, digestions, and so forth. That's right. So, so I'm not saying that monitoring your glucose excursion is bad. Um, it's good. It, it, it's just not enough. All right. In the grand scheme of things, I would say that um, monitoring your glucose excursion will give you about 10% of the equation. Okay. Now, 10% is more than 0%. So that's good. But if you think that's all you need, then I got a bridge to sell you. All right. What you will also need in order to do this properly, is the insulin response, the postprandial insulin response. And with that, you will need the postprandial C-peptide response because you'll need to know whether that insulin is really insulin or pro-insulin. And and that's a big issue. And also, you will need the postprandial triglyceride response. And that's something that, you know, is really just very new. And, um, you know, we're just publishing the paper on it now. And then lastly, maybe, we don't know this if we need this yet or not, we're going to find out if we need it, is a postprandial lactate response. Now, you know all about lactate because you're bodybuilders, okay? Your audience probably knows about lactate because they're bodybuilders, all right? But lactate tells you about more than just muscle mass. It tells you about mitochondrial dysfunction. When your mitochondria are not working right, your lactate goes up. And we know this because we actually studied this in children 
when we took the sugar out of their diets. Obese children, we took the sugar out, we put the starch in, and their lactate went away. And that's telling us that their mitochondria are now working right. So understanding what your postprandial lactate response is may also be important for figuring out, you know, a, a rational meal plan that works in terms of not just bodybuilding, but in, in terms of metabolic health. And these are things that are not there yet. You know, they're, they're coming down the line, you know, maybe seven to 10 years from now we'll have them. Right now, all we have is glucose. What if, uh, what if an inv- individual is to follow a diet that is mainly protein and mainly fat? Uh, could they still run into fatty liver? Could they still run into some signs of uh, even diabetes uh, without fiber and without maybe paying attention to some other things? So basically, you're asking me, is the carnivore diet okay? Something like that. In 10 words, in 10 words or less. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the answer is the carnivore diet's fine. Okay, provided, provided you get enough vitamins and minerals. Now, that's not an automatic. You will certainly get enough B12. You'll certainly get enough B6. But, you know, you may not get everything you need from a carnivore diet. You know, you may not get uh, 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 vitamin D. Uh, dep- you know, if you're drinking milk, you know, vitamin D fortified milk, you, you, you may, but not everybody on a carnivore diet likes milk. Um, in addition, there are other things that you only get out of green uh, vegetables, you know, such as biotin and um, flavonoids. So, you know, what I would say is if you want to be on a carnivore diet and add some green vegetables, I understand why you don't want others, you know, other vegetables, starchy vegetables, that makes perfect sense. And you don't want to generate an insulin response, but green vegetables will do it nicely. There was actually a paper in the British Medical Journal about 2018 that showed that you can add green vegetables to a ketogenic diet and not come out of nutritional ketosis and actually supplement all the things that the ketogenic diet's missing. Do you think you'd be in line with fatty liver disease if you overate on those particular diets, keto diet, carnivore diet? You would not. You would not. And the reason is because the uh, saturated fat and the other fats that you'd be taking in, they would be um, uh, uh, processed in the liver as LDL, LDL, low density lipoproteins. That's what happens to dietary fat is it gets converted into LDL. LDL is not the cause of fatty liver. LDL sometimes occasionally can be the cause of heart disease but it's not the cause of fatty liver. The cause of fatty liver is the VLDL, the very low density lipoproteins, also known as triglyceride. And that triglyceride in your liver is not from dietary saturated fat. That uh, triglyceride in your liver is from de novo lipogenesis. That's from sugar. So no, being on a carnivore diet is actually, or or being on a uh, ketogenic diet is actually a way of alleviating the uh, fat burden in the, uh, in the liver rather than uh, the opposite. And that's another myth that has to be debunked, you know, by the, uh, by the science, you know, cause the, uh, the, the, uh, the people, you know, the populace just doesn't understand that they mm-hmm. think fat makes you fat. And that is just not the case. So I have a question um, now in, in practice, let's like, let's think more general population then because like 
know a lot of people are thinking than the subsect of people that are working out and doing all this, but within the general population, um, mm -hmm. how is it that you have people make change? Cause do, do you look at it more through like, um, uh, a hierarchy of like food habits, like let's look at what you're eating. Let's remove yeah. processed foods. Let's remove right. sugar. Let's remove this, that, and the other. Um, right. Now, some people from the sect of counting would be like, okay, yeah, you remove all that. It's very hard to overeat whole foods or eat That's a massive right. caloric surplus of whole foods. That's it's right. It's still possible. So I'm guessing that you, with, with that being done, which is a much better way to eat anyway, you also like pay attention to the amount of food that these individuals are eating, and they'll naturally end up eating in a way that will allow them to not just reverse their fatty liver, et cetera, but lose excess body fat. That's what I'm assuming is happening right. here, correct? Yes. So let me, let me tell you what the missing link is. Okay. All right. Because you're absolutely right. But the question is through what mechanism? Mm -hmm. Okay. And that, that, that's the missing link. And to be honest with you, that was how I got into the obesity business in the first place was, you know, investigating that missing link. So there is a hormone that comes from your fat cells that goes to your brain and tells your brain, you know what? I got enough energy on board here. I don't need to overeat. I'm good. And I can burn energy at a normal rate because my, you know, uh, you know, stores are topped off. And this hormone is called leptin. Okay. And you've probably heard of leptin. It was discovered in 1994. Right. And I was at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Uh, the ca pediatric cancer hospital in 1995. And these, and, I, and when I got there, I was presented with a cadre of about 20 to 25 children who were normal weight at birth, normal weight until their brain tumor was diagnosed. And their brain tumor was in the hypothalamus, the, you know, energy regulation center of the brain, the hormonal regulation center of the brain, you know, kind of like right at the base of the brain, just above the pituitary. And they had either surgery or they had radiation. Some of them had chemotherapy and they had survived their brain tumor, which is great, except that now they were massively obese. They were perfectly normal weight before the tumor. And now they weigh 350 to 400 pounds. And not only that, but these kids would just sit. They would do nothing. Nothing interested them. No activity. They were lumps on a log. They sat on the couch, ate Doritos, and slept. And the parents of these 20 to 25 kids would come to me and say, you know, Dr. Lustig, this is double jeopardy. You know, my child survived the tumor only to, to, to succumb to the therapy. And it was up to me to try to figure out what to do for them. Well, leptin had just been discovered. And so I postulated way back 26 years ago now that these kids, clearly their leptin used to work, but now it doesn't. And it must be because of the brain damage. And because their leptin doesn't work, their brain thinks they're starving. Because if you can't see your leptin, that tells your brain you have no energy stores down below. 
to be able to conduct normal energy expenditure. All right. And so that would shut your sympathetic nervous system down. That's why you lay on the log and it also would activate your vagus nerve. And that's why you would eat everything, you know, that's not nailed down. All right. Now, how could I fix that? Well, I can't fix the leptin problem because I'm, you know, I can't fix a brain. Even not even a neurosurgeon can do that. So the question is, what can I do instead? And so, you know, I went to the literature and I'm a neuroendocrinologist. So, you know, I had a little bit of training in this. And what I realized was that the hypothalamus sent a message via the vagus nerve to the pancreas to release insulin. So the leptin tells the hypothalamus, calm down on the vagus nerve so that you don't eat everything in sight. And so these kids had enormously high insulin levels, and we knew that. So I said, what if we give them a medicine that blocks insulin release so that their pancreas is not putting out all this excess insulin? And so we designed a research study to answer this question and signed up eight kids, pilot study, everyone got drug. And I told, well, Parents, you know, call me after two weeks to tell me how things are going, and I'll see you in a month. Patient number one, mother calls me after one week, frantic. Dr. Lustig, something's happening. And I'm going, oh, God. Adverse event. Shut, study shut down. Go to jail. You know, I'm, I'm just waiting for the shoe to drop. And I go, well, what, what happened? What happened? And the mother would say, said, well, normally we would go to Taco Bell and she would eat five tacos and an enchirito and she'd still be hungry. Well, we just went to Taco Bell and she ate two tacos and she was full and she just vacuumed the house. She just vacuumed the house. Okay. All of a sudden. And the kid hadn't had a chance to lose weight yet. It only been a week. Mm-hmm. Okay. She feels better. You know, she's not eating as much. She has energy to be able to do something else, you know, something with, you know, physical activity. Turned out this was not a fluke. One kid became a competitive swimmer. Two kids started lifting weights at home, you know, could have gotten some training from you guys. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs. These were kids who sat on the couch, ate Doritos and slept, and now they're active. Because we dropped their insulin. Their leptin still wasn't working, but we dropped their insulin. And so what happened was, because the insulin's job is to take energy and put it into fat cells for storage, by blocking that with the drug, now they had the energy to burn, and they were burning. And they felt better. One kid said, this is the first time my head has, hasn't been in the clouds since the tumor. This was really a big boom. This was amazing. So in the next study, we did a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and we built in a quality-of-life questionnaire to assess this. And sure enough, if we got the insulin down, these patients both lost weight and felt better. 
and started being more physically active. And what this proved to me, and this is proof, this is not conjecture anymore. This is a proof study. What this study said to me was that the biochemistry drives the behavior. So you see gluttony and sloth. I see insulin. You see, you eat too much, you exercise too little. I see leptin resistance. And I see that you can fix that by getting the insulin down. And so that's what we did at UCSF in my uh, weight assessment for teen and child health clinic, our pediatric obesity clinic, for 17 years, is get the insulin down any way you can. And when you do, the patient, number one, loses weight. Number two, the patient feels better. And number three, once they understand what feeling good feels like, they never go back. How do we get people to understand that part of it? Because I think that you, the information that you just gave us is amazing. But just, uh, you know, somebody without disease, but somebody that's sitting on the couch that is eating Doritos, that is struggling. How do you uh, propose they start taking that first step? Because we know once right. they get momentum, they will feel a lot better. But man, that momentum is a tough thing That's to right. find. I hear you. Oh, uh, you know, I, I lived this for how many years? Uh, you know, th- this is what we did. So our weight assessment for teen and child health clinic at UCSF, which I've clinically retired from now, so I don't see patients anymore, but the clinic still goes on. So you can, you know, patients can still come. Um, We did a couple of things. First of all, we never blamed the patient, ever. You never blame the patient. If you blame the patient, it's over. And I will tell you, there's one word that if you said it in my clinic, you got thrown out. Bodily, headfirst. And that word was calorie. If you said the word calorie, you were gone. And what, because if you said the word calorie, basically you were blaming the patient. Because if it's about calories, it's about calories in, calories out. Therefore, it's about gluttony and sloth. Therefore, it's about behavior rather than biochemistry. Therefore, you're blaming the patient. Let me, let me ask you this, back up just a second. If uh, you're not blaming the patient, it's totally understandable to eight-year-old kid. What about the person that's responsible for this child? What about the parent? Um, right. So one, right. one uh, conjecture I would have towards blaming the parent would be, I would also blame uh, the owner of a pet that has an obese pet <laughs> <laughs> because they're the well, one that control, you know, they control what they feed their pet. So what is well, your take so on that side of it? Yeah. So, so Mark, I, I very much appreciate this. And I had to deal with this every day because I didn't have one patient I had two. Mm. I had the patient and the parent, and I had to treat both of them in order for things to get better. So what we did in our clinic, which was, and we studied this, we actually validated this instrument to show that it works. All right. We wrote a paper about it. What we did that was the most important thing to fix the problem was what we called the teaching breakfast. So all of these kids came fasting. All right, because we were drawing their blood to determine their comorbidities, to determine their liver fat, to determine their fasting insulin, all the stuff. Okay. So they all came fasting 
So four things would happen at the clinic. Number one, they'd see the doctor. Number two, they get a physical exam. Number three, they'd fill out a whole bunch of labs, a uh, form, sorry. No, number four, sorry, they, they, they would, um, uh, five things. They, they would get their blood drawn. And number five, number, which was the important thing, they would go to the teaching breakfast, all right? And it was held in bo- both English or Spanish at different, different hours. Six kids, six parents sitting around a communal table. And every week, every month, sorry, we would get a, uh, uh, a $100 uh, uh, gift certificate from Trader Joe's to buy the food. And we would um, basically feed them. And the food that was on that table okay, was narrated by the dietitian. And she would explain to each of the kids and each of the parents why those foods were the ones on the table for breakfast and not the foods that they were eating at home that were on the table for breakfast. All right. And what the difference was. All right. And basically, we said, this is to keep your insulin down. And this is why. Okay. And in addition, we had shown them that their kid already had eye insulin because we looked at the back of their neck. You ever go to church? You ever look at the back of people's necks? You ever see the ridging, the hyperpigmentation? Kind of looks like elephant skin on the back of the neck. And it's under the arms too, and sometimes in the groin. That's got a name. That's called acanthosis nigricans. Okay, that's not dirt. Parents think it's dirt. So we have to explain to them that's not dirt. Right? We explain that that's insulin working on the skin. So even though we haven't drawn your kid's blood yet, we already know your kid's insulin's high. And as long as your kid's insulin's high, you're not going to be able to solve this. And here's why. Because insulin high, kid eats, straight to fat. Next day, kid eats, insulin high, straight to fat. Every day, bigger, 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 bigger. Cause the insulin's high. Not because of specifically what was eaten that day, but because the insulin's high all the time. Until finally, the kid becomes so rotund, so enormous, you know, that Finally, the pancreas, which makes the insulin, can't even make enough for as big as the kid will have gotten. The kid will have basically outgrown their insulin supply. And when that happens, now the sugar stays in the blood, starts to rise, and now you got type 2 diabetes. Okay, so we had to explain that this is an insulin problem. And I know your kid has a high insulin because I can see it, and so can you. Because they'd never seen this before. We had to, we actually pull it up on the computer and show them, you know, look, this isn't ring around the collar. This isn't dirt. You know, other, here are people who have this and this is why. All right. So we basically had to, pers- you know, personalize this for them so that they understood that. And we then, you know, use the teaching breakfast to say, we got to get your kids' insulins down and here's how you're going to do it. And you're going to do it by doing things differently than you did before, because it's what you did before that got you into this problem. You know, Einstein's theory of insanity, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. You got to do something different. All right. So four things had to come out of that teaching breakfast. Number one, the parent had to see the kid would eat the food. Two, the parent had to see the parent would eat the food. Because they're not going to buy it if they don't, if they won't eat it. Number three, the parent had to see other kids would eat the food because they got other kids at home. And number four, we showed them the bill. They had to see they could afford the food. 
and we actually tick those four boxes. If that we tick those four boxes, patient did well, patient lost weight. And then we would just say, you know, more and more. All right. If they didn't get those four, then the patient did not do well. So we know what has to happen and we know how to do it. Now, the question is, how do you do this at scale? How do you do this? Not for a kid sitting in obesity clinic. How do you do it for an entire population? Now, that's a bigger question. That's why I write books is to be able to explain this. But ultimately, we have to get this into the medical curriculum. We have to explain to doctors and dietitians and dentists and, you know, ancillary medical staff and insurance companies, okay, what's going on. And ultimately, we have to get the food industry to re-engineer and reformulate the foods that they produce and procure and market, okay? The point is, they have no impetus. They have no interest because, you know, Sugar's their gravy train. It's their juggernaut. And, you know, they're not going to give it up without a fight. And they're going to drive this bus till the wheels fall off. So we're not going to get a lot of um, uh, traction at the, f- at the uh, food industry level. So right now, what we have is education of the public. And we're trying. You know, that's why I'm here with you right now. So, yeah, yeah. education alone, I don't think will cut it. I do think that. I do think that maybe uh, one way to do it is to just make it not cool anymore. Like if it's not, you know, if it's not, sure. in, if it's not in vogue anymore, I know we don't want people right. fat shaming people and stuff like that, but right. just imagine if uh, Taco Bell was viewed as a cigarette and you saw someone eating Taco Bell and you were like, can't believe people are still doing that. <laughs> right. Well, so, so in fact, in fact, that's exactly right. And the thing is that the addiction paradigm, you know, is, absolutely active here uh people don't understand that sugar is addictive okay and you asked me before but you know the parent is in charge the parent's responsible for the kid being fat right even if the kid's not responsible then the parent's responsible because they can control what they're eating the problem is that the likely the parent is sugar addicted themselves and you know if they were cocaine addicted it would be the same thing if they were heroin addicted It'd be the same thing. The difference is that sugar is socially acceptable. How many people do you know who come up to you and go, oh, God, I have a horrible sweet tooth? Mm-hmm. That's sugar addiction. Now, do they ever come up to you and say, oh, I have a horrible cocaine addiction? <laughs> yeah, that's not socially acceptable. But, you know, it is socially acceptable to say I have a horrible sweet tooth because they're looking for enablers. <laughs> they're looking for somebody to sit down to share that apple pie with. Okay. <laughs> And that's still acceptable. So 30 years ago, you would walk down the street and you would see a guy smoking and you'd think that was cool, was fashionable. Today, it's a filthy habit. You feel sorry for the guy. Mm -hmm. All right. So my goal is for you to be walking down the street 10 years from now, see somebody drinking a Coca-Cola and feel sorry for them. Can that happen? Well, it happened for tobacco, happened for alcohol. These cultural tectonic shifts, and there have been four, count them, four in the last 30 years in the United States. And here they are, ready? Bicycle helmets and seatbelts, smoking in public places, drunk driving, condoms and bathrooms. Okay, 30 years ago, 
if a legislator had stood up in a state house and promoted any sort of legislation about any one of those four, they'd have gotten left right out of town. Nanny state, liberty interest, get out of my kitchen, get out of my bathroom, get out of my car. Today, they're all facts of life. Nobody's arguing about any of those. Everyone has accepted them, right? And if you, who has kids? Okay. If you pull out of your driveway and you haven't buckled your seatbelt, your kids will scream at you. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. car, too. Okay. And the right. And the <laughs> car will, too. Right. So how'd, that ha- so how'd that happen? And why did it take 30 years? Answer, we taught the children. The children grew up and they voted. And the naysayers are dead. Hmm. You don't change people's minds. You change generations' minds. So maybe people aren't allowed to eat a certain amount of carbs within 20 feet of your building? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Sure, sure. Why not? Why not? Citizens arrest if someone has too many carbohydrates. (laughs) Well, you know, in fact, you know, Bloomberg tried the big gulp ban and he tried to get, yeah. you know, uh, uh, sodas off snap. These were appropriate public health measures. You know, they were too, they were a little too early for the, uh, you know, for the level of education. Ultimately, the reason education is important is to allow for society to be able to allow for these, uh, uh, you know, policy measures to take hold, you know, to, to you know, basically, you know, smooth the playing field. Let's say... Say Dr. So that's why education is necessary. Say Dr. Lustig is in charge. Uh, what do maybe food labels of the future look like? Or what kind of regulations are you looking to uh, maybe impose on some of the big food companies? Right. So I, would, I, would, uh, I wouldn't even impose regulations on the food companies. I mean, I would, but, uh, you know, I mean, there, there are two things that I would do that are more important. Okay. With respect to the food label, I would completely gut the, entire, the current food label. All food is inherently good. It's what we do to the food that's not. And that's what I explain in my book, you know, which, you know, metabolical, there it is right there. Okay. Is that it's the processing, it's the food processing. And that's not on the label. So what I would do is I would basically take the current label, throw it in the garbage. And what I would do is I construct a new food label that told people what's been done to the food. What's been added and what's been subtracted. Because that's more important than what's in it is what's been done to it. And I actually explain in, with the empiric science why that's true within the you know, pages of the book. So from the label standpoint, that's what I would do. And then from the policy standpoint, yes, we could talk about you know, food industry regulation and all. And that we can do that, but I actually think there's something way more important, you know, that's way higher up the the uh, echelon in terms of um, uh, making change. And actually, you will agree with it. Let's get rid of all food subsidies. Every food subsidy. Currently, the only things we subsidize are corn, wheat, soy, sugar, all the things that are killing us. Those are the bad guys in this story, corn, wheat, soy, sugar. What if we just got rid of all food subsidies? 
there's no economist on the planet that actually believes in food subsidies because they distort the market. So let's let the market work. Even libertarians can get on board with that, right? You don't want government, you know, basically telling you what to buy. But when they subsidize something, they're telling you what to buy. That's their job, if it were, as it were. But, you know, we don't need that. You know, we needed it when we had a, the Dust Bowl. We needed it when we had the Depression. But we don't need it now, right? So the question is, what would happen to the price of food if we got rid of all food subsidies? The Giannini Foundation at UC Berkeley actually did this exercise several years ago. You know, the mathematical, you know, uh, modeling of this. And what they showed was that the cost of food would not change, except for two items, corn and sugar. Those would both go up. Well, that's what we want, because that's what's killing us. So I would say you can't do anything in terms of food industry regulation until you remove the subsidies. Right now, the processed food industry has an impetus to create all the wrong products because they're paid to get rid of the subsidies. And then we can start talking about what we need to do to get the food industry to do the right thing. They can't do the right thing as long as the subsidies are in place. That's where I would start. This is so interesting because it's like, I, I totally understand like what you're talking about and the benefits of, getting rid of sugar, getting rid of processed foods. Yeah. Um, I guess just the rough part is that that is such a big battle in and of itself because a large part of dieting culture is, mm-hmm. oh, can help you lose weight and you can have your snacks. <laughs> right? Well, it's right. Like, so that, yeah, I, I hear, I hear you. It's I like trying you. to get people out of that mindset <laughs> of even wanting yeah. to keep those things involved because they're right. so good and so palatable. That's right. tough. Well, that's sugar addiction, isn't it? Yeah. It <laughs> so, you know, it, it all comes around again. And I, I hear you. And that's basically what we have to uh, work on and what we have to change. It, you know, there are a lot of people who still think that eating small, frequent meals is a good idea to maintain your blood glucose. Okay. What a crock of you know what. All right. If that were the case, then why would intermittent fasting work? Now, intermittent fasting does work, you know, for for alleviation of chronic disease. The question is why? And and it's not about the calories. You're not actually reducing calories when you're intermittently fasting. What you are doing is you are giving the liver a chance to burn off the fat that's accumulated because you're providing with a greater window of no eating. All right. So that means that whatever fat has built up has a chance to be burned off first. And the liver will burn that off first when provided with a period of no calories coming in. So that's why intermittent fasting works. And that's a good thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a proponent of that for the right patient. The question is, why do you need to intermittently fast? Well, it's because of the liver fat. Well, you know what? If you ate real food, you wouldn't have had the liver fat in the first place. So. You know, this concept that you need your snacks to maintain a glucose level, you need your sports drinks to provide hydration and, you know, that, that, that sugar in order to replete glycogen. I'll be honest with you, it's all canard, big canard. 
Okay. And the data actually show it, but you know, the food industry, they ain't going back. And, you know, we can certainly talk about sports drinks if you want, but, uh, you know, I think they are one of the biggest problems and especially for kids. There's an unbelievable assortment of choices when you go to a store, go to a grocery store, like even just the beverage area. You're just like, whoa, like when did where, when and where did this happen? There's aisles and aisles of right. beverages like, yep. holy crap. Well, uh, but the truth is, is they're not that, sugar got cheap. Yeah, right. That's why high fructose corn syrup made sugar cheap. And, but a big big piece of the puzzle here that people may not realize is there's not that many big food companies. I think you have pointed out, and this was years ago in your speech that had like 12 million views on YouTube. That one that blew, blew <laughs> a lot. You've a lot of years have yeah. blown up like that, but that one in yeah. particular, I think you mentioned there was like seven kind of big players. Is it still the case now? Or is there a lot more people in the field because the, uh, the economics of it all? Right. Well, so there are 10 major food conglomerates and I actually show them on that slide. Um, you know, and that, they control 90% of the food in this country and actually around the world. So, yeah, that you know? leads us to not having as many choices as you think, as you think, because they're promoting Absolutely. particular things because they are already getting stuff cheap. That's right. Well, so what they're promoting is their own stuff. I mean, so there's a lot of choice within a company. But mm. the fact is, because they're also few companies, in fact, and they're all using sugar as their hook as their juggernaut, as their gravy train, because basically they know that we're all addicted because they know when they add it, you buy more and I can prove it. Um, the fact is that um, they, they have no reason to change. Now, there are some startups. There are some you know, early you know, entries into the you know, processed food field that might have some, uh, shall we say, traction in terms of improved health because they're scientifically designed to be to do so but you know what's happening to those they're getting bought up by the big cpg companies and either you know and, and for the most part getting killed so they bought them you know it's basically catch and kill for them or sometimes so uh, they problem. sometimes that same company that harms you is the same company that offers <laughs> something well, in a Nestle different aisle that's healthy Ish. Nestle's offering butterfingers and diabetes pills at the same time now. <laughs> you know, so this is this is a huge problem. Oh man. Um did have you found that, you know, using something like artificial sweeteners has caused, you know, the same like insulin response or, you right. know, has that messed anything up with uh some of the patients that you've worked with? Right. So that's a really good question. Everyone wants to know about artificial sweeteners. And actually the data are starting to come in. Yeah, you know, I used to say I don't know, but actually we do have the data now. Hold on, there we go. Um, we do have the data now. There was a paper that came out in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2019 that st stated essentially, I mean, this is a paraphrase, but this is what it came down to. The toxicity of one Coca-Cola equals the toxicity of two diet Coca-Colas. So better, but not good. Better, but not good. All right. So the question is if it's no fructose, there's no sugar, and there's no calories, why is it not good at all? So let me give you a, an experiment that was done in 2012 in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Uh, the first author is Mayersk. Really good, really good article. Here's what happened they took 100 normal adults in Copenhagen divided them up into four groups of 25 adults each. First group, 
normal diet plus a liter of sugared soda per day for six months. Next group, normal diet plus a liter of diet soda per day for six months. Third group, normal diet plus a liter of whole milk per day for six months. Fourth group, normal diet plus a liter of water per day for six months. Got it? Mm. So what happened? The liter of soda per day group gained 10 kilos. No surprise. The water group lost two kilos. No surprise. All good so far. It's the two groups in the middle that are the interesting ones. The liter of diet soda per day. What happened to them? They gained 1.5 kilos. Now, they didn't gain 10 kilos. They only gained 1.5. The question is, why'd they gain any? How come they gained any? If the, if the diet soda was zero calories, zero fructose, zero sugar, why'd they gain any? Answer? Because when you put something sweet on the tongue, message goes tongue to brain, in, uh, sugar's coming, brain to pancreas through that vagus nerve that we talked about with the hypothalamic obesity kids. So sugar's coming, get ready to release the insulin. And guess what? It releases the insulin anyway. Not as much, but it still releases the insulin and that insulin still straight to fat. So not as bad as the sugar, but still a problem. The liter of milk per day group. Now the liter of milk has as much, many calories as the liter of soda, but there was zero change, no change in weight at all. How come? Because the liter of milk, the fats in the milk, and the proteins in the milk were satiating. They bound to receptors on the inside of the intestine, sent messages to the brain, don't need any more. And so they cut down on their normal food intake. So they ended up in energy balance because their leptin worked. So the bottom line is, it's not about the calories. Because if it were about the calories, the diet soda group would have done what the water group did. And they didn't. Another reason a calorie is not a calorie. And another reason why it's the insulin stupid. And you can't figure the insulin out from a calorie sheet. So Period. Just real quick. So in that study, so the, the group that drank the milk, they ate mm-hmm. less food because they were satiated. Right. So was there something similar with the, the group that drank the diet soda that just consumed more food? And is it okay to blame the diet soda instead of saying it just tastes really good and therefore they ate more food? Well, we don't know the answer to that, but the assumption is that the insulin that the diet soda drove, which it did, the, you know, because of the sweet taste, was the thing that caused energy deposition and therefore the patient had to eat more in order to make that back. Got it. So bottom line, it's the insulin that matters. And the problem is that calories and insulin are so loosely correlated as to not be useful. And that's what, and because, you know, it's not the calorie you consume, it's the calorie you absorb. And it's the insulin response, not the calories that make the difference in terms of the weight. So bottom line, throw out the calorie sheets, 
Okay. And to be honest with you, dietitians are still promoting this because that's what they learn in dietary school. And I know because I got a cousin who's one. All right. Bottom line, dietitians can be part of the problem or they can be part of the solution. And they can choose if they're doing math, they're part of the problem. If they're doing science, they can be part of the solution. They can choose. Okay. But my job is to kill the calorie. And so I may be killing a few dietitians in the process. <laughs> And good riddance. Uh, one one thing that so like I I personally I do track my calories. Um, and in the space where people do track, um, the the kind of end all be all argument is the law of thermodynamics. Um, I know you've spoken about that in the past, but can we talk about that today? Sure. So the first law of thermodynamics says that energy can neither be created nor destroyed, just shifted around. The total energy within a closed system remains constant. Agreed. The first law is a law, and I don't argue that. But the first law has two interpretations. The law is the law. It's the interpretation of the law that matters here. So here's the first law as you would interpret it, Andrew. Mm -hmm. If you eat it, you better burn it or you're going to store it, in which case the energy storage is a function of the food intake and the food and the, the, the calorie intake, calorie expenditure. In other words, the behaviors, the intake and the expenditure, those are the behaviors. The behaviors come first, and the biochemistry, which is the energy storage, comes second. So far, so good? That's what you would say. Mm -hmm. There's another way to state the first law. And here it is. If you're going to store it, that is an obligate weight gain set up by an high insulin that is out of your control, and you expect to burn it, that is normal energy expenditure for normal quality of life, because energy expenditure and quality of life are the same thing, like the kids with the hypothalamic obesity I showed you. Then you're going to have to eat it. And now, the two behaviors that you associate with obesity, gluttony and sloth, are actually secondary to a biochemical mechanism called insulin. So, the first law of thermodynamics is a law. The interpretation is the issue. And I'm going to tell you, Andrew, you got it wrong. Okay? Switch it. Turn it around, and then you'll have it right. Thank you. <laughs> I was curious about something, and this may sound really, really dumb, but I'm, I'm curious if there's anything to it. So, um, do you have? Is there any idea to understand if, like, for example, artificial sweeteners, there is a slight yeah. insulin response, maybe not as much as like normal. Yes, yeah, not as much. Not as much, but not as much. Um, with that being said, it's like a sweet taste. So. If a person over time ingested less actual sugar and more artificial sweeteners, right? Like from yeah. diet soda or whatever, does right. that response become less and less over time as far as the insulin response? Like, or does it not stay? That we see. Not that we see. Okay. Yeah. okay. Not that we see. Not so that just we the see. same, what does, lower what does change? What does change are the taste receptors on your tongue. Mm. This is work that Monica Deuce, who's a, actually a fly neuroscientist, uh, at the University of Michigan has shown yeah. is what happens to the taste receptors and then how that ultimately uh, predicts the insulin response. Uh, so 
it doesn't change the insulin response. It changes the sensitivity of the sugar to generate it. So you need more in order to get the response. So you. So basically, that's the phenomenon of tolerance. Mm. And so the phenomenon of tolerance occurs at two places. It occurs on your tongue, and it also occurs in the reward center of your brain. So you need more to get the same effect, more and more for less and less, the phenomenon of tolerance. And then when you add on top of that stress, now you have addiction. Tolerance plus stress equals addiction. I think it's also fair to say it's important for people to pay attention to their behaviors. You know, pay attention to your behavior after you eat a cookie. Pay attention to your behavior after you have a diet soda. Because I think for some people, it may trigger a response to them wanting to eat a lot more or for them to want to have sure. this daily. And as you sure. mentioned, uh, you know, maybe having five or six diet sodas a day, I think most of us can kind of uh, recognize like, hey, you want to have one here and there. You don't have any current health risks. Looks like you're pretty healthy. Uh, go for it because it is. Imp- I think it's just as important to do some of the things that are enjoyable in life. You don't want everything to be so monotone and so, you know, all yeah, the time. I, so look, enjoyment I'm, here I'm and there. For, look, look, number one, number one, I'm for dessert. For dessert. I am not for dessert for breakfast, lunch, snacks, and dinner. <laughs> okay. If you want to have a really good, fantastic dessert, hey, invite me over. Okay. That's great. Okay. The question is, why is breakfast dessert? Why is lunch dessert? Okay. Kids. Okay. National school breakfast program. Okay. 29% of all children in America are on the national school breakfast program. 45% are on the national school lunch program. All right. What's in the national school breakfast program? What's a standard breakfast? A bowl of Fruit Loops and a glass of orange juice. Oh, man. That is 41 grams of sugar. Okay. That is 10 teaspoons of added sugar. The American Heart Association says that for children over age five, it should be three to four teaspoons for the day. Mm. There's 10 and it's just breakfast. So would you call that breakfast or would you call that dessert? Dessert. All right. So how do you explain to a parent that it says healthy on the Fruit Loops? And really, it's poison. How do you explain that? Well, that's my job. And that's what I do in this book. Um, what I was going to ask is, how do, how do we, like, uh, you know, being a parent and uh, seeing what, you know, what other parents do uh, with their children and stuff like that, um, it's easy for me to observe and it's easy for me as a parent to have noticed that if I was to take my child to an orthodontist and they said, hey, you know what? It looks like your son, you know, needs braces. Uh, you know, I'd talk it over with my wife, talk it over with my son. Right. And he would probably wear braces. If I went to the doctor and I said, you know, my, ty- my son's very fatigued, he's not feeling well. And they came back and they said, hey, look, he's like 40 pounds overweight and he's pre-diabetic or he's diabetic. Why in this country is that such a harder thing to deal with? Is it because... To throw braces on somebody like doesn't it, it just costs something? It's like a it's a fee. You put the braces on. The doctor tightens it up here and there, and I don't have to do anything as a parent. Is it right. because we've gotten to be like super lazy? We don't want to attack it, or is it too sensitive? Or like, what's well, your vantage so, point on that? So, first of all, everyone wants the pill. 
Yeah. No one wants to do anything. And and prevention is irrelevant. You know, it's basically fix it after it's broken. (laughs) That's the American way. That's the insurance company way. And you know what? The insurance companies were very happy to do that because that's the casino model. Pay to play, set the rates. And that's how they made money. They were happy when you got sick because that gave them an excuse to raise your rates. And they could also still say no, which they did, you know, frequently. Well, the fact is Obamacare, and I don't care if you like Obamacare or not, it's irrelevant to me. Obamacare did one thing, one thing. It capped insurance company profits at 15%. And now, because of that, the insurance company can't make money raising the rates. They actually have to give money back if they didn't spend it. So all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, that's not so profitable anymore. So for the first time in their existence, since 1929, when the first you know Blue Cross appeared in Fort Worth, Texas, okay, they want you to be healthy. And they don't know how. They have no idea how. Because all these years, all they did was provide sick care. Nobody provided health care. Nobody provided prevention. Nobody provided well care. Well, the fact of the matter is, it's the processed food that's killing us. And it's interesting that you brought up the braces issue as, a, um, as, your, as the paradigm to get into this. So I actually have a chapter in the book about this. So my question to you is, why do so many kids need braces today? <laughs> is it because there are so many orthodontists? Yeah. Right. Soft. Is that the reason? No, there are, but that's not why. <laughs> the reason is because so many kids have malocclusion. So many kids have overjet or overbite, way more than before. And it's not just an American thing. China has gone berserk with malocclusion. All right. Since 1994, their rate of malocclusion has ridden, risen like. 150 fold. They never had malocclusion before in the kids, and now they do. And guess what? If you have malocclusion, you also have obesity. You also have sleep disordered breathing. So, why is this? And the answer is bottle feeding and pureed processed baby food. So, think of it this way. When you're born, you have an airway, okay, your mouth right here, okay, and your palate back here, okay, and that has to grow. How does that grow? Chewing. It the, first well sucking. first it grows because of sucking, and sucking on mother's uh, nipple provides an enormous negative pressure pushing up on the hard palate, and there's a suture. You know, where the bones, the maxilla bones come together. It's called the incisive suture. Mm. And the um, tongue is pushing up against it, expanding it. All right. But if, if you're sucking on a plastic nipple, you don't have the same uh, negative pressure. And so it doesn't expand as much. And that ends up leading to the high arched palate, which ends up leading to the malocclusion. Then, After age six months, when you start introducing solid foods, the thing that grows that airway are the muscles on either side, the um, uh, temporalis, the masseter muscle, and the medial and lateral pterygoids that are involved 
in chewing. So before there was processed baby food, which basically started in 1901, how did parents feed their babies before 1901? We had many thousands of years of raising children. Okay, How did parents feed their babies before there was processed baby food? The same way the birds did. They would put some regular food in their mouths, macerate it up themselves, and then drop it into the baby's mouth. And that's how the baby also got the mom's um, microbiome. Mm. And it also caused them to have to gum it and chew it to death, which generated increased muscle tone in those muscles of the face that grew the airway and provided for more oxygen which basically kept us healthy. Now everyone's got malocclusion and sleep disordered breathing and obstructive sleep apnea, which then only fosters more because now the fat in the neck actually causes the um, uh, airway to, you know, uh, get even smaller while you're sleeping because, you know, you don't have the ability to hold it open. And so now you've got obstructive sleep apnea and that puts right, you know, puts you in right heart failure and now you're dead. So, Our food practices, not just for uh, kids and for adults, but actually for babies, is a total, complete disaster. We have basically undone our own biology. And we have to, and we have no choice but to get it back because there's no pill for this. Would you say that, um, because you had mentioned at at six months is when they would chew up the uh, the food and then give it to their baby is that like a good recommendation my son is about to be four months old and yep. and i've been wanting like let's sh- let's see what happens let's chew up a steak and throw it down there but um that's just me being a meathead um but i was curious like what recommendations would be for uh solid food for him well so my question is do you want the american academy of pediatrics recommendation or do you want mine <laughs> i would i would very much appreciate yours but also curious <laughs> what the american academy of pediatrics does say about this well i'm trying to fix that yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The, it's it's a it's a long lonely road mm-hmm. <laughs> but the the pediatric orthodontists are starting to come on board i just wrote a chapter in a textbook with uh, uh my colleague dr kevin boyd of Lurie Children's Hospital in, at, the, at Northwestern University in Chicago um, about this whole issue. And there's also a book out that uh, uh, is already out. It's called uh, Breath by James oh, yeah. Nestor, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, you know talks about this issue as well. Mm-hmm. It's about growing the airway and why this is important. So for me, the answer is we need to let kids chew. Um, and the only way to do that is to give them real food. And that's what we used to do. But, you know, then everybody got scared about kids choking. And, you know, the question is, how many kids actually choked and ended up, you know, needing to go either to the emergency room or died? And the answer is virtually none. But, you know, we put the fear in people, you know, that that would happen. And, the, you know, it was the processed food industry, you know, making pureed baby food in pouches. You know, and so it sounded like a good idea. We've actually undone something that was good. Mm -hmm. And so we need to re-rethink this. And the American Academy of Pediatrics needs to rethink this. And I actually give talks on this called the the nutrition transition uh, in, you know, from fetus to toddler. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing my part, but it's a, it's a long, lonely road. 
and then your own recommendations? Well, I think that you it's good it's good to get that that kid chewing. And I think meat is good. You know, it's a good thing to chew because it will get macerated and it will go down and hey, it tastes good and it doesn't have any sugar. How about that? <laughs> how do we determine what's a like or how do you determine what's a good food and a bad food? I know you said all food is kind of inherently good. It's just kind of what we do to it. But how do you determine uh, you know, what's good what's for healthy? us? Right. So what's healthy? So in the book, I actually define healthy. You know, the FDA has a stupid definition for healthy, you know, low in saturated fat, um, high in vitamin D, uh, high in potassium and magnesium. That's the FDA's definition. The USDA doesn't even have a definition of healthy because if it did have a definition, then all of the packaged foods couldn't say healthy on them. So they don't even try to define it because then, you know, all the industry would go bonkers trying to meet that. So, you know, this is like a joke. It's a, it's, it's the biggest canard in Washington mm-hmm. is the FDA and the USDA. These are captured agencies. All right. So what's my definition of healthy? And it actually fits the empiric data. Six words, two clauses, six words. Easy to remember. One, protect the liver. Two, feed the gut. Protect the liver. Feed the gut. Any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. Any food that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. And that's what the empiric data show, which is why I offer it in the book, chapter 11, is how that works and why it works and the data that actually support that contention. Where does some steak sit on that? Steak doesn't uh, flood the liver, and the steak ultimately feeds the gut. Steak fits fine. What are some some foods that some people would maybe have expected to be good or healthy that, you know, probably isn't? Strawberry yogurt. Strawberry yogurt specifically? (laughs) Strawberry yogurt. Okay. So, yogurt is good. Mm -hmm. Nothing about yogurt, plain yogurt. That's bad. You know, everybody is eating this low-fat yogurt. That's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Eat the whole-fat yogurt. Get the satiety out <laughs> Don't of Don't look at me. Get, God get, okay, so people think saturated fat is bad, and that's wrong. Saturated fat is not bad. It turns out that dairy-saturated fat is good. Dairy-saturated fat and red meat-saturated fat are not the same. Red meat-saturated fat are even-chain fatty acids, C16 and C18. Uh, um, Dairy-saturated fat are odd-chain fatty acids, C15 and C17, which are metabolized in the liver differently, and they also have a specific phospholipid signature, which has been shown to be protective against diabetes and heart disease. So dairy-saturated fat is good, but we've taken the fat out of the milk and out of the yogurt because we thought it was bad. It's not. It's good. Is there anything to be made of grass-fed? Does that matter much? Well, grass-fed will mean less branched-chain amino acids. And like I said, if you're a bodybuilder, you need branched-chain amino acids. But if you're not a bodybuilder, you don't. So, you know, I think it depends. You know, your, for your uh, uh, audience, you know, it might not matter as much. For other audiences, it might matter a lot. So, um, uh, the, and the thing is that the, the, when you take the fat out, the yogurt tastes terrible. So, what do they do? They add the strawberry. So if you look at the side of a plain yogurt, 
it says seven grams of sugar, and that's all lactose, which is fine. Nothing wrong with lactose. That's glucose and galactose. It's fine. But if you take a look at the side of a strawberry yogurt, it's 23 grams of sugar because that's what's been added. And it's not the fruit. It's all, you know, this fruit puree. So there's no fiber in that. So that's basically all added sugar. So basically, when you eat a strawberry yogurt, you are eating a bowl and a half of Fruit Loops. So, I mean. So you think that's good? No. Well, it, there you go. That that gets you curious because we don't think there's anything wrong with fruit. But you do hear a lot of people that um, demonize fruit, right? Uh, so where does well, that fall in line with what we're talking about here? So there's a difference between fruit and fruit juice. Fruit is fine. And the reason is because fruit has fiber and the fiber. And remember there are two kinds of fiber, soluble and insoluble. You need both. The soluble fiber are like pectins or inulin, like what holds jelly together. Mm. The insoluble fiber is cellulose, like, you know, the stringy stuff in celery. Okay. Fruit has both. What happens is that, Remember that duodenum? Remember the gel? Okay. So imagine that the cellulose, the insoluble fiber, is like the lattice work of a fishnet. And the soluble fiber are like the kelp that plugs the holes in the fishnet. And together they form that barrier to prevent the sugars from getting to the uh, liver early. So you are protecting your liver. In addition, the fiber moves the food through the intestine to the jejunum where the um, microbiome will chew it up. So you are feeding your gut. And also soluble fiber is specifically food for your colonic bacteria. And they turn that into short chain fatty acids, butyrate and propionate, which are anti-inflammatory and anti-insulin. They keep your insulin down. Remember keeping your insulin down is the goal of this exercise, right? So fiber does that. So fiber is the nutrient you don't absorb. Because fiber is the nutrient for your bacteria, and you have to feed your bacteria. So protect the liver, feed the gut. Fruit does both. Fruit juice is fiberless. You know, is the, the insoluble fiber has been removed, and you need that insoluble fiber to make the gel and also to move the food through the intestine faster. So bottom line, you will flood the liver. The soluble fiber will still feed the gut to some extent. So it's not as bad as a soda. And that's what the data show. Juice is not as bad as a soda, but it's still bad. And juice consumption still correlates with diabetes and heart disease. Real cool question. And I I want us to continue going on here, but I figure since we're close to what we were just talking about, I, I want to ask, we were talking about kids um, bottle feeding versus, you know, um, breastfeeding. Yep. Has there been a bottle that's been made that simulates the pressure of a nipple? Like that Not yet. really is Not that yet. possible? Cause I feel like that should be possible, right? Oh no, I'm not a material science engineer. Fair. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we actually bought one that like, at least the shape kind of looks like a breast. <laughs> yeah. But I, we, I, that doesn't yeah, mean no. that, that doesn't mean it works the same. No, yeah, and and thankfully my wife is on board and she's been you know savage and my son has been one hundred percent breastfed. But yeah, hopefully I'll include a stake in there pretty soon. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. And I will say, you know, if I can toot my own horn here a little bit, um, while I'm not a material science engineer, I work with some. 
And what we are doing in an attempt to try to mitigate this disaster of chronic metabolic disease, you know, basically fast food, processed food is fiberless food. You know, they take the fiber out for, for depreciation and shelf life. All right. And it makes it go down real easy. The point is we have to be able to turn apple juice back into apples. The question is, how do you do that? Well, some colleagues of mine and I are developing a proprietary fiber that is a microsized cellulose, like a mini cellulose sponge, microcellulose sponge, impregnated with some hydrogels that are actually food for the bacteria, but hold on to mono and disaccharides in the duodenum and prevent their early absorption. Is it a little bit like jello? Well, no, it's a pill, Mm. but it will end up being like jello by the time it gets into your intestine. Got it. And so it expands to 20 uh, folds larger (laughs) and will actually sequester the mono and disaccharides in the gut in order to prevent them from being absorbed early. And then so it can feed the gut later. So it protects the liver, feeds the gut, even with, you know, processed food. So the, the company is called Biolumen Technologies, and you can look it up online. <clears throat> and we're trying to, you know, get this to market. Uh, one thing I was actually really surprised when, you know, with my son finally uh, going down like the baby section was seeing that um, all the baby formula was locked up and is really, really expensive. And it surprised me because as soon as he was born, these companies had been sending formula to our house. Like, we have like way too many. Like, I just threw them away. Um What's, uh, I mean, is baby formula okay? Like if babies are kind of getting, they're, they're gaining too much weight, is formula a reason for that? Yeah. Well, the baby formula companies will tell you that baby formula is good for you. Right. The question is, is it true? And the answer is, well, if your wife can't pump, then you have no choice. Mm -hmm. But if your wife can pump, then breast milk is way better. And the reason breast milk is way better is number one, it has omega threes, and you know it, now the the uh, the uh, what do you call it? It's the 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 formulas now have omega threes. They've been adding it because they understand how important it is. Um, in addition, the breast milk has what are known as oligosaccharides. Now these are strings of sugars that are anywhere from two to five sugars long that your the breast specifically makes. And this is work from Bruce German at UC Davis and Lars Bodie from UC San Diego. And it has been shown that these oligosaccharides, and each one of them is different, and there are like 200 different versions of them that the breast makes. And different people, different women make different ones of them. And so they have different functions within the uh, uh, baby's intestinal tract. But they can act as antibiotics so that bad bacteria don't grow in the baby's intestine. And so they have, you know, anti-inflammatory and antimicrobial activities that are good for babies that formula could never be able to uh, 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 fix. So there is no question that breast milk, because of its calcium to phosphorus ratio, because of its, um, uh, because of these oligosaccharides, uh, because of the omega threes story, and it, it is better than formula. 
And there's no, and, and the American Academy of Pediatrics is very clear on the fact that ba- uh, breast milk is better than formula. However, having said that, there are a lot of women who cannot breastfeed, either because of their jobs or because of, you know, just inability to lactate or because of medications that they might be on, et cetera, et cetera. There are a whole bunch of reasons why parents can't breastfeed, you know, certain women can't breastfeed, and they need an option. And so, you know, the formula, uh, um, you know, industry is there for a reason, and <clears throat> I'm not against formula. I'm just against it as a first choice. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Just a last question about breast milk. I guess it's a two-part question. Um, if a if a mother can produce breast milk, is that a sign of a of a of a healthy diet or at least a good diet for her? And then second question, because this is what my wife is um she she it's heavy on her mind. Anytime she wants to eat something, she believes that that's gonna go directly into our son and it causes a lot of anxiety when it comes to her diet now. Um so, so yeah, is there truth to that? And then also because she is able to produce so much, is that an indicator that like, no, you're actually, you're doing, you're doing fine with your diet right now. So I don't think that, um, the mother's, uh, uh, diet has anything to do with the volume of breast milk. Okay. Okay. So I don't think those two things are related specifically. I mean, the volume of breast milk may have to do with her state of hydration, but it won't have anything to do with whether or not her diet is replete or not. Um, Having said that, there, uh, your wife is correct about certain things that she eats getting into the breast milk. The big one, the one that, you know, is sort of, you know, the dietician still can't believe is sugar, is fructose. So the molecule fructose is, acts like alcohol in terms of what it does to mitochondria. Fructose is a mitochondrial poison. It inhibits mitochondrial function, and it does it two ways. It does it by inhibiting an enzyme called AMP kinase, and it also does it by inhibiting an enzyme in the mitochondria called ACADL, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain. And it may even do it a third way by increasing the amount of uric acid in the liver, and uric acid impairs carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which is the enzyme that uh, shuttles uh, fatty acids into the mitochondria for burning. And so when you d- uh, inhibit that enzyme, then you can't get the fatty acids into the mitochondria to burn in the first place. So may even do it three ways. So sugar, fructose is bad for your mitochondria. Now, it was always assumed that fructose did not cross the placenta. It does. They said fructose doesn't get across the placenta because the placenta does not have the GLUT5 transporter, which is specific for fructose. That's true. It has the GLUT7911 transporters, which transport fructose just fine, but they're, it's not specific, those are not specific transporters. Point is, fructose gets across the placenta and can damage the baby's liver and the baby's brain. Second, it was said that fructose doesn't enter the breast milk. Oh, yes, it does. If you t- drink a 20-ounce Coke, you will overwhelm the mother's, if the mother drinks 20 ounce Coke, it will overwhelm the mother's liver's ability to extract it on the first pass. You will end up with a serum fructose level and that fructose will enter the breast milk and will feed the baby. And that has been shown very nicely by my colleague, Dr. Michael Gorin down at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. And so if the baby is consuming excess fructose because the mother drank a Coke, 
That's a problem. What if it's a Diet Coke? Well, then it won't be fructose, but then you've got the question of what does that Diet uh, Coke do? There's, <clears throat> there's recent data that says that sucralose causes leaky gut. And um, in addition, uh, some of the uh, uh, diet sweeteners, if they get into the bloodstream, have receptors on fat cells that can actually cause those fat cells to take up uh, extra energy, just like if they were exposed to insulin. And, they're, and it's just in response to the diet sweetener. So if that's happening in the baby, that could you know, drive baby's weight really fast. So you can see that, you know, what the mother does has everything to do with how the baby fares. And um, so this is not to be taken lightly. What did you, or when you were talking about how it can have an effect on the baby's brain, um, and you also mentioned earlier that kids are being born in general heavier. So do these children, (laughs) I mean, let's say that, let's say that parents are paying attention to what their children are eating. They're purposefully not, you know, letting their sugar have a lot their children have a lot of processed uh, sugars, processed foods. Do these children, because of potentially maybe what the mother ate or when, when they were, when she was pregnant, do they have a higher propensity to crave sugar, even if you don't give it to them ever or often? So that, that study has just been completed out of the Manel chemical census center in Philadelphia. And the answer is yes, we've been waiting for that study and it just got done. Yes. The answer is yes. Okay. You can actually train your fetus's tongue to like sweet before the baby's even born. Dr. Lustig, thank you so much for your time today. Where can uh, people get your book? Well, the book's everywhere, you know. I mean, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But to be honest with you, I would very much prefer if you bought the book at your local bookstore. They need your support. Bookstores are happiness. We do not want them to go out of business. Um, Bookstores are good things. They are good things for everybody. And so if you have a choice, get it at the bookstore. But in any case, get it because I'll bet you you didn't know all this stuff. (laughs) And you need to. uh, And you have to understand what the food industry is doing to try to keep you, shall we say, in place. And, you know, and that, and that means profit for them and, you know, illness for you. So, you know, this is, this is a war. All right. Because what's good for them is bad for you. And what's good for you is bad for them. And until the food business paradigm changes, it's not, you're not going to change. The question is, how do you fix it? And the answer is you vote and you vote with your fork 21 times a week. Mm. And you have to know how you have to know how to vote for as it were. Okay. So uh, I think that this book is an an essential read. I hope, you know, you guys do too. And, you know, uh, pick it up and, you know, it will debunk modern medicine. It will debunk nutrition and it will debunk processed food. It will debunk big, big pharma and it will debunk big government. It's a, it's half science, half expose. If it were a Hollywood book, it'd be a kiss and tell. But because it's about diabetes, it's a piss and tell. <laughs> Very inspiring to have you on the show today. Doctor, lawyer, writer, and many other things. I'm not a lawyer. I did one year of law school oh, okay. on purpose, on purpose to learn public health law. Okay. I, right. I am I am not a lawyer. I can't sue. 
I just can talk to people who can. Awesome. Thanks again for your time. Have yes. a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Man, he hit us with a lot of good stuff. That's some food for thought. Mm-hmm. I really hope that um, individuals kind of understand the, the, the message in terms of the calories don't matter idea and what he's looking for, what he's uh, kind of opting for instead, as far as like good food habits, et cetera. Cause he's right. Like, you know, if you do have those good food habits, you will naturally drop weight, drop body fat, et cetera. Cause like eating a lot of those foods, it's, it's not easy to just eat in excess. I think right? sometimes it's very hard to say like what works and then you have to define what we're talking about when you talk about does something work. Um, calorie counting, uh, has it been effective to help the United States, uh, fight obesity? No, no. <laughs> has it been effective to help us fight disease? No, but in the people that comply to it and the people that follow it, yeah, I think it's worked pretty good. Yeah. Uh, does it work? Does, does it work for someone to go from not counting their calories to being 20% body fat to making a decision where they want to be 12% body fat? And they start to track their calories. Turns out they eat 4,500 calories a day. Then they figure out a way to reduce their calories. They learn about protein. They learn about, you know, kind of how to eat. They make better food choices because they're tracking their calories. That's an important piece of the puzzle that people leave out often is that it's, you're more, you're more than likely to make better food choices because you're now accountable because you're counting up Mm. what you're eating. You're tallying up what you're eating every day. And so you're like, I'm not supposed to eat that because that's going to register too high. And if I have 850 calories now, then it's going to mess up. I I can only do that one more time and I'm done for the day, Mm -hmm. you know? So it makes people accountable and it allows people to uh, have a measure, how accurate it is, very debatable, uh, because I don't think that protein is much of an energy source. I don't think that fiber is much of an energy source. We know that food labels are incorrect. Uh, but very much like getting your body fat checked or very much like weighing yourself every day. Who really cares if the scale is inaccurate? This is a unit of measure. Mm-hmm. The scale says you weigh 180 versus you actually weigh 190. It really doesn't matter. If you're trying to trend downward and the scale shows that you keep going downward, <laughs> it might not, mm-hmm. might not really matter that much. You still uh, are trending in the right direction. And so, to try to even define uh, that something's working or not working is, is a really uh, hard thing to to uh, give like credence to. But when he's talking about like fatty liver disease and diabetes, it does make you wonder. And I don't think the information is out there yet because I don't think people have been meticulously counting calories the way that we have been uh, with maybe just the last 20 years, 30 years. Like yeah. It hasn't been that long yet. So we don't know the health implications of somebody spiking their insulin multiple times a day through maybe not making the best food choices, but still keeping their calories in check. I don't know if we have enough information to determine whether that is something that's going to not promote fatty liver and things like that. It's Mm -hmm. hard to say. Yeah, you hit it right on the head with, you know, uh, if you are tracking and accounting for every calorie, um, you know, as, as an example, like I used to grab like a quest bar almost every day on my drive home, just so that way I, I get bored. And sometimes I start to doze off. Not, not the best, best thing, but if I eat something, it keeps me awake. Um, 
now that I'm tracking, like I'm not grabbing, you know, that protein bar. Just don't anymore. need it. There's no need because when I look at it, I'm like, wait, if I eat that, then that means I have less calories for dinner tonight. Like, I, nope, I'll, I'll just chew some gum or whatever and <laughs> take the five calories instead. Um, but in regards to the, I mean, I, there's a lot of people that, you know, I, I wish we could like tag one of our friends in, like when it comes to like him saying calories don't matter. Like, cause I know Lane Norton, he's pretty heavy on, you know, the, the energy in, in and out type of thing. It'd be cool to just have like the, the conversation. Um, so the only thing that I will take from this is I'm just going to keep stacking the odds in my favor. Um, I, I will research and try to figure out like the insulin response and that sort of thing. But in the meantime, I know if I eat 2,200 calories, I can pretty much like maintain and grow a little bit. If I eat 1,700 or less, I'm going to start losing weight. And it, I, yeah, it definitely does matter what foods I eat. But if I, again, stack the odds in my favor, then there's a good, <laughs> good chance that my weight will trend in the direction that I'm hoping to go. I mean, just another just practical takeaway, you know, as far as when it comes to like fatty liver and, um, actually type two, one thing that people can do, like if you are an individual that does track, if you do pay attention to that, um, and it's working for you in terms of the specific goals you have set, maybe do your best to just keep the processed sugar and processed foods out of the diet. Like we, we talk about that all mm -hmm. the time. Just maybe just keep that out. Yeah. Right. Um, because it's like, again, that's why I, like I get what he's saying. I totally understand what he's saying as far as the calories don't matter thing. It's just try to tell that to somebody who's making so much progress Correct. in their mind. Um, try telling them that that doesn't matter and it doesn't make a difference. And they'll just put their weight in front of you or they'll just put their progress in front of you and show you what type of progress has been made. But, you know, the, the big thing we're talking about here is the general population outside of, let's say, people that are really zoned in on that mm -hmm. exercising having good fat, like having good habits. It's like what he's like that. It would be ideal if the general population could stray away from processed foods and sugar. Everyone would be healthier for it. Everyone would be, um, you, you can't necessarily say that that's a, that's wrong. I think, uh, you know, when it comes to like, uh, gaining body fat, like there's, it's hard to point to one thing that, that quote unquote makes you fat. Um, I would even say that insulin doesn't make you fat. I mean, bodybuilders use insulin. They're not fat, you know, and uh, you know, they, they inject it. Uh, there's people that are type one diabetic that, uh, have mm -hmm. to utilize insulin every day. Uh, if insulin made you fat and these people were injecting it all the time, uh, I think it would be likely to conclude that they would automatically be really, really heavy. And a lot of times they're not, sometimes they're not even, uh, overweight at all. A lot of, in a lot of cases, not overweight at all. So the only thing that you can equate to um, to people being way overweight and having excess amounts of body fat seems to be people overeating day in and day out, over consuming energy. You want to call them calories, however you want to, however you want to mark that. And then people saying like a calorie is not a calorie. I can actually agree and disagree with both of those statements because I think the way that we light calories on fire inside of a box, like just to me, that's ludicrous. Like, I don't think that makes a lot of sense, but it is our unit of measure. We currently don't have anything else that matches that. 
that's the way that we decided to measure it like 50, 60 years ago. Mm. And uh, with a bomb kilometer or whatever the fucking thing is. Bomb calorimeter. Bomb calorimeter. There you go. Yeah, it sounds like something out of a, a superhero movie or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the way that we measure them. And it can be something that we've seen work for people before. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about work, I'm talking about the management of their body weight. And then also, I would have to say that in managing your body weight, we've seen many times over, both research-wise and just our own observation, that when people can manage their body weight and they start to lose body weight and body fat, they normally get healthier. Does everything get healthier? Do they fix all their problems with that? Maybe they would have to investigate more on the actual foods that they're eating at that point to get better and get rid of everything or to try. Uh, but it is a unit of, me- it is a unit of measure. And, you know, it does seem, I, I hate, I hate the conversation sometimes because I think that both Dr. Lane Norton and Dr. Ludwig are both helping people. Mm. And so I don't like the, I don't like, um, I don't like the fighting, you know, um, if if we if we were if we were to get mom dad stop yeah that. yeah well if we like if we were if we were to get attacked you I know feel like it's my fault well if the three of us in this room were to get attacked mm-hmm. it wouldn't be the best time for me to test out my boxing skills against and Seema's jujitsu skills we'd be better off saying hey let's and and Andrew let's see if we can fight these fucking people off yeah since we're all part of the same mission you know what mm-hmm. I mean and instead it's like. The butting of heads, and no one cares. No one, no one cares about, uh, you Who, know, Doctor Lustig and 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 uh, and um, Lane Norton like fighting. Like no one really cares. Like we care because we're nerds, so we would listen to it and we'd have fun <laughs> listening to the different conversation back and forth. But the person that's three hundred and fifty pounds that's really struggling, they don't care. They just want the advice that's going to help them get to the next level, or the motivational thing that's going to help them get off the couch and get moving, probably. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something that was super important for people to pay attention to uh, during the conversation. Is like after you have some of these foods, um, pay attention to your behaviors after. Pay attention oh, to yeah. the way you feel after you have like a Ben and Jerry's or a Reese's, and then pay attention to what your appetite does. I think it's necessary to have a reference of having time away from it first, mm-hmm. like having time where you've gotten stopped eating sugar for a bit, like processed sugars. Um, and see how you feel as far as your palate and your appetite's concerned. And then play the dark game of bringing it back. Because then you'll realize how much you then start getting driven to have more and more and more. I think I realized that when I did get rid of that. And then when I started implement, bring it, just started having a little bit here and there. I realized like, oh shit, I'm starting to really want more. Like the next day, I'm mm-hmm. craving it way more. Like I really want to. And I have to actually fight that feeling. Whereas when it's just gone for a while, I can stay away i remember i took uh some painkillers i had something happened in the gym i can't remember what it was one of the guys got me some painkillers i didn't want to take them but i was literally in a lot of pain i took them they felt great uh i was able to move around for a few days and i told my oldest brother i told mike i said i'm like hey like you know the next day i'm like i feel like shit and he goes the only way to get rid of that is to take more (laughs) he's like you need to take those and you need to fucking give them to somebody else or throw them away like you need to do it like immediately. And I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know exactly what he meant, but, and I was only like after being doing that for like three days. So I think the same thing happens to food. It's maybe not the same 
you know, pull, like people when they're dealing with drugs or alcohol, people can die if they go cold turkey off of certain drugs or certain, certain, uh, even alcohol sometimes. So people have to be really, really cautious with that. But when it comes to food, I've noticed that I have pizza one day, the next day my mind is racing. Uh, I have ice cream or something like that. The next day my mind is racing and the only cure for it seems to be like to fill in that gap again is to get that sugar. And it's great to, you know, really push away and stay away from them. And I think I mentioned to you before, Andrew, even the best times of my life in terms of my nutrition, I don't think I've ever even gone that far, like where there hasn't been, I, I probably have only gone about two weeks or so without having something that's not great for me or something that's, even during my bodybuilding show, I would get a little break here or there. I'd get like a, a small cheat or, um, I never, I'm definitely have never gone like 30 days or you know, a couple of months without anything sweet at all. Uh, I'm trying to think like even like carnivore diet stuff, like I would still have a protein shake. Mm. Like I've never. And so I think it, it's a, it's a good practice just to see how many days I'm not saying that you need to go a month or two months, or three months, but maybe just see if you can go like two, three days, learn what that feels like, learn, you know, l learn about it. And sometimes you'll find yourself when you dive deep into stuff like that, that it actually kind of makes you a little bit miserable. But I think experiencing some of that and knowing some of that and then recalibrating and saying, I didn't really like that. That was kind of like bullshit. I didn't like that that much. That was too severe. Let me kind of find some middle ground that makes me happy and allows me to get progress. You know, the fact, though, that not having processed sugar can make one feel so miserable should be something to really think about. <laughs> right. Like, we shouldn't feel so miserable yeah. without that substance. But we do because it's like, like straight up, like, People don't like hearing the idea of sugar addiction, especially I know some trainers like are like, oh, no, oh, yeah. right. That, that's BS. But like there that that does exist. I mean, there's a reason why, like, you know, you don't want to take away someone's cigarettes. They'll get angry. People, you don't want to take away their sugar or they'll get angsty and angry. That kind of is a problem. <laughs> Even though we can be shredded and eat sugar, it's still not necessarily healthy for it's us all it's all a thing right like even opening opening up a thing of cereal like the smell of the uh, mm. uh cocoa pebbles or whatever right like yeah all, all that choice. stuff the Fr the uh, are amazing. the sound of like pouring them into the bowl mm. the sound of like putting the milk on top the of them, combination right? of the milk <laughs> and then the kind of soggy and then still oh, kind of crunchy yeah at the same time. you get to the bottom of the cereal bowl and it's like mm, it's like the, the sugar has <laughs> seeped into the milk yeah. and it's like a juice I, I, mm. I'll always leave like a mountain of dry and then mix that with the, the wet. So oh, that way it's just like yeah. a good combination of crunchy and soft. I think maybe you mentioned before, Andrew, like not understanding how to enjoy yourself at a party without a beer in your hand. Correct. Yeah. Right. Like, and that's, that's, I've heard people say that before. I've heard people say it about food. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how to sit down in front of my TV without, uh, crunching on something. And, mm -hmm. I never think that you have to completely get rid of that. I actually just think that you might need to just make better choices. You know, protein shake, maybe trade out your, uh, you know, food with something that has is less dense in calories or there's, there's usually better options. Make sure you had a good uh, dinner beforehand mm -hmm. where you had a lot of protein. You did everything you needed to do in the day. You walked, you lifted. Now it doesn't matter as much mm -hmm. if you have something, you know, but. Anyway, I thought I thought today was great, and Robert Lustig. Uh, people should look up a little bit more information on him. Check out some of the uh, posts that he's made, or some of the YouTube things he's made. Mm. 
it's got one in particular that's got like 12 million views and it's just it's amazing he goes through the whole entire thing of of kind of how we got here in the first place it's amazing yeah and i'll i'll link his um book down in the uh, youtube and podcast uh descriptions i like what he said about a sweet tooth that was pretty funny what are you talking oh, about like, like- Cocaine. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we got a we got a steak tooth is what we got. Steak yeah. tooth. I like that. Yeah. Speaking of steak, uh t- so today that you're listening to this, uh check the clock. Uh so one PM Pacific time. Piedmontese is having a twenty five percent off sale uh for Memorial Day. And so if you order by what's it March, April, May nineteenth through May twenty sixth it'll ship and arrive before Memorial Day. So if you want to have that, you know, big Memorial Day barbecue, uh, make sure you order before then. Um, and if you're listening to this after that sale has happened, uh, make sure you use promo code POWERPROJECT for 25% off your order. And if your order is $99 or more, you get free two-day shipping. Are we out of here, Mark? Do you want me to close this thing down? Absolutely. Cool. Thank you, everybody, for checking out today's episode. Uh, we just released another newsletter so if you guys have not subscribed to that check the links down below um, make sure you're following the podcast at mark bell's power project on instagram at mb power project on tiktok and twitter my instagram is at i am andrew z as well as twitter and sema where are you at make sure you head to itunes people i'll tell you every time head to itunes give us a i'm sorry and uh yeah leave a rating you guys have been leaving some dope stuff there so thank you and sema in yang on instagram and youtube and sema yin yang on tiktok and twitter mark Strength is never weakness. Weakness never strength. Catch you guys later. Bye.